You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Aristotle said that we make war so that we can live in peace, one of the many paradoxes of entering into battle. Could another paradox be that technologies that save lives ultimately result in producing more wars? That may be because the landscape of war is changing. Increasingly, human soldiers are being replaced by unmanned machines. And there are different kinds. Some are military bots controlled by soldiers with joysticks. Others are semi-autonomous robots. Some are fully autonomous drones. This isn't the future of war, it's happening now on the battlefield. And it's just the first step. The advancements in robotic technology ensure that the next generation of robots will be more sophisticated, more autonomous, and increasingly be making decisions about life on their own. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Are We Alone? As we look at the rise of the machines, not only for conflict, but in areas where important decisions are now made by humans. Imagine robot bankers, robot surgeons. Will they do the right thing? Find out if the new field of robot ethics can provide guidance. One U.S. Air Force three-star general I met with said we'll very soon be talking about, quote, tens of thousands of robots. And we're using them in all sorts of operations, in the air, on the land, we use them at sea. The gradual replacement of human soldiers with warbots is what one writer calls the biggest revolution warfare has seen since the introduction of the atomic bomb. P.W. Singer, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of Wired for War, says robots are changing the nature of war at every level. Who fights and why and what the consequences are of a war fought by androids. One of these robots is on the ground now in Iraq, he says. It's the PackBot. And it's one of the most widely used ground robots in the U.S. military. Its primary mission so far has been counter-IED operations. These IEDs are improvised explosive devices. They're the roadside bombs that have been so terrible in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so the PackBot is driven out onto the battlefield when they see something that 
maybe a piece of trash or maybe it's a roadside bomb. Instead of the soldier having to go up to it close, check it out, defuse it themselves, the packbot is sent to do it. And it's an amazing capability. And in fact, there's literally hundreds, if not thousands of U.S. soldiers that are alive today because of this system. Now, when you say when it sees something, do you mean that it sees something and it's actually detected these devices, these bombs, or the soldiers have themselves by remote control? Well, that's one of the interesting questions today is how do you distinguish between the two when they're operating almost like a team? So the PackBot has an array of sensors on it. Some are visual sensors where it's just acting like almost a, a mobile pair of binoculars for the soldier. It also has some other sensors that a soldier wouldn't be able to do on their own, such as chemical bomb sniffers, things like that. So in many ways they're operating as a team. Now, how many of these sorts of machines like PackBot are on the battlefield right now? The numbers and the scale of the use of these systems, uh, I think, will take many people by surprise. We went into Iraq with just a handful of these unmanned drones in the sky, pilotless planes, UAVs. We now have over 7,000. On the ground, we went in with zero of these unmanned ground vehicles like the PackBot in the invasion force. We now have over 12,000. The kinds cover the gamut from the Predator drone to the PackBot to the SWORD system to the MarkBot, to, you name it. And this is the way to think about it, is these Predator drones, these PackBots, are a lot like the Wright Brothers Flyers, the Model T Fords. They're the first generation, the prototypes of an entire new revolution to come. And of course, they're also becoming armed. The technology industry term of killer app, killer application, it takes on a whole new meaning when you're talking about these systems being armed with everything from machine guns to Hellfire missiles like the Predator drone, which we've used in Iraq, Afghanistan, and now Pakistan. And so the bottom line here is this. We are experiencing a revolution in robotics. It's a lot like the entry of gunpowder or computers or the printing press. It's a new technology that really does rewrite the rules of the game. It really does force us to ask new questions about not only what's possible that wasn't possible before, but also what's proper. What's the new right and wrong in this world? Now, now you said that they could, some of these are armed. These are robots that are prepared to kill human beings. They're not, they're not just going out into the battlefield to disassemble bombs and things like that. They're actually prepared to kill. A lot of people, when we talk about these issues of robotics and ethics and war, they say, well, what about Asimov's three laws? Uh, and of course, law number one is robot shall not harm human. And I have to respond that there's a couple of problems with this. One is Asimov was writing in the world of fiction. We live in the real world. We haven't been able to design ethical codes for robots. I mean, look, my Roomba can't even reason itself out from being stuck under my sofa, let alone figure out how to apply the Geneva Conventions in war. But the second thing is that the military is building these robots for war. You don't arm a Predator drone with a Hellfire missile. You don't give a sword system, which is a robot that's made by Foster Miller, a 50 caliber machine gun if not to harm humans. That's the very point of it. Now, now Peter, it, it may be self-evident, at least the desire to save human lives. I mean, of course, that's what we want to do, and we would send machines in the place of, of actual humans on the battlefield. But why, let me still ask the question, why increasingly use machines in warfare as we are? 
when you talk with people in the field, and, and look, I went around for this book interviewing anyone and everyone that connects to robots and war, not just the scientists who build them, but the science fiction authors who inspire them, what it's like to be uh, a 19-year-old pilot flying these systems while you're sitting in Nevada and the planes flying over Afghanistan, or what it's like to command these units, four-star generals, but the opposite side, what do the insurgents think about our systems? What do they think about us sending out robots to fight? And so when you go around interviewing these people, they talk about the rationale for using robots is really coming down to the three Ds. That is, robots are most apt for roles that are dull, dirty, or dangerous. So dull. Can you keep your eyes open for 30 hours straight without blinking watching empty desert sand? A robot can dirty. Can you operate in the middle of a dust storm? Can you see at night in multiple spectrums? Um, can you operate in a chemical or biological warfare environment? A robot can. But most important in my mind is the last one, dangerous. And as the commanders of these units talk about, the appeal of these systems is they can send them out on missions and not worry about having to write a letter to someone's mother. And so that's why we're using more and more of these systems. And and yet what you just said, that it, it allows you to send a machine off into war without worry that you're going to hurt a soldier. And yet you say there's a cost to that not worrying. And actually there's an advantage when we worry about our soldiers and that we get concerned about warfare because when you send machines out, you're making war more and more abstract. And that's a problem. I did this interview with a former um, Pentagon official who actually worked for Ronald Reagan, and I thought he put it really well. He said, I like these systems because they save lives, but I also worry about more marketization of war, more shock and awe talk to defray discussion of the costs, and that people are more likely to support the use of force if they view it as costless. And I thought that was a really remarkable way, um, an insightful way of describing the challenge here, is that these systems save lives, but they also seem to be making us more cavalier about the use of force. And they may be taking certain trends that were already happening in our body politic, maybe to their final logical ending point. And you can think about it this way. We don't have a draft anymore. We don't declare war anymore. We don't buy war bonds or pay higher taxes for our wars anymore this new technology that allows us to carry out acts of force without having to worry about the risks to soldiers and the political impact of that. And so we already had the barriers to war lowering in our society, and robotics may well take that to the ground. And you can actually, I think, see this playing out right now in terms of our operations in Pakistan. When you count it by the raw numbers, we have carried out more robotic drone strikes into Pakistan over the last year than we did manned bomber strikes in the Kosovo War. And yet, we didn't debate about it in our Congress. We don't talk about it daily in our media. We just do it. And I would argue we do it without this debate, without this discussion, because it's seen as riskless to us. I'm speaking with P.W. Singer. He's the author of Wired for War, The Robotics Revolution and Conflict in the 21st Century. What we've been talking about so far are robots that are controlled by humans. And we were saying with a joystick, for example. Uh, but battlefield robots are displaying greater and greater levels of autonomy. And I wonder if you could describe for me what the global hawk can do 
and maybe begin by describing what this plane looks like. The Global Hawk is the replacement for the U-2 spy plane. And some people joke that it looks like a flying white albino whale. It's about the size of a small passenger jet, and it's a great illustration of how we're getting further and further along this spectrum of autonomy, giving more and more control to the systems themselves. So the Global Hawk, for example, can take off on its own from San Francisco, fly on its own all the way from San Francisco to Maine, stay in the air for another 24 hours over Maine, hunting down a terrorist who might be hiding out there using you know anything from high-powered radar to electronic intercept, you name it. And then at the end of carrying out that mission on its own, at the end of that 24 hours in the air, turn around, fly itself all the way back from Maine to San Francisco and land itself. So it's not being so much piloted by humans on the ground, not operated, but really, they're just kind of supervisors and managers of its mission. I joke that this is a lot like the Lord Voldemort issue um, from the Harry Potter series, the issue that shall not be discussed, how we're taking man out of the loop more and more when it comes to war. This is a phrase that comes up often that, that really is the nut of one of your concerns, this phrase humans in the loop, as in the assertion by one of the military experts that you spoke with that said, well, we don't have to worry about completely autonomous robots because humans will always be in the loop. But you do not believe that to be true. Again, first we've redefined the loop where we say, oh, we're totally in the loop, except we're really not under the old meaning of the term. We're not making all of the decisions. We're only supervising or we're only becoming one with ex post veto power. The other is that we're constantly working on shrinking our role in the loop for very good military reasons. So war is quick. We don't have time to respond. Or you have um, the fact that if you're controlling a system and there's an enemy, they go, hold it. If I can just cut that loop, I can just cut that link of communication, then I've defeated your system. So then we say, okay, well, we've got to have a system that's smart enough that even if we're not telling it what to do anymore, it'll still carry out its mission. We're working on that. So why not have autonomous robots and then have the ability to override them, have humans override the system when they need to? Exactly. Except we go to that final part, which is, you know what? It really does make sense to give them autonomy. And during the research for the book, I came across four different projects on various aspects of armed autonomous systems. And one of the most amusing studies carried out by Joint Forces Command really puts a lie to this idea that we would always be in the loop. The title of the project was called Armed Autonomous Systems, Taking Man Out of the Loop. So finally, that arrives at the the big question is what the solution is. And do you see any compromise here? I mean, is it limiting the number of machines or limiting the autonomy of the machines? And is there any solution to this? The point of the book was to really to, to pop that bubble of ignorance, to force people to get their heads out of the sand. And I say people, not just people you know, uh, who are working in science, but more importantly, those of us more broadly, people in public policy, people in the Pentagon, you know, this isn't a what-if scenario. What if we one day might have 7,000 drones, 12,000 ground robotic vehicles? We're already there. It's there right now. And yet we don't have the codes, the constructs to turn to. So 
if you are a scientist right now who's trying to figure out what's the ethical thing to do when I'm building these robots, you don't have a code of ethics to turn to. If you were a architect, you would have that. If you were a doctor, you would have that. But our roboticists don't have that. Or the same thing for the broader public. We can't be in denial about these systems and say they're not out there or say, you know what, they're just mere science fiction. I remember meeting with someone who described them that way. No, they're not science fiction anymore. They're real. And so we really have to wrestle with the consequences of them on our society. The same way we've wrestled with the consequences of computers on our society and the internet on this, our society. It doesn't mean stop using it. It doesn't mean we're going to solve all the problems. It means we've got to start weighing these things before it's after the fact. Peter Singer, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. P.W. Singer is director of the 21st Century Defense Initiative at the Brookings Institution and the author of Wired for War, The Robotic Revolution and Conflict in the 21st Century. Coming up, meet your new surgeon, a robot. From robots on the battlefield to robots in the medical field, now you may understand the urgency behind the new field of robot ethics. Can we teach silicon minds right from wrong? It's Robots Call the Shots on Are We Alone? Science Radio for Thinking Species on Any World. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome back to Are We Alone? Well, we've been hearing about robots on the battlefield where they're increasingly making life and death decisions. But there are another team of robots making decisions on how to save lives. Molly and I are here at SRI International in Menlo Park, California a nonprofit research institute that is developing a robotic technology to create a revolutionary form of medical treatment called a trauma pod. That's a mobile surgical unit that would be employed to stabilize wounded soldiers until they could get to a hospital. Think a mash, if you will, but uh, you know, a bit of a twist. The surgeries are actually performed by humans, but at a distance, and the scalpels are, in fact, wielded by the robots. Hello, I'm Pablo Garcia. I'm a principal engineer at SRI International working on medical robotics. Okay, Pablo, do I have this right? The trauma pod is being developed so that humans aren't needed in the operating room or for that matter, even on the battlefield. The trauma pod is intended to provide surgical care in the battlefield where teams of doctors are hard to come by. And it's intended to provide first class surgical care to casualties that, that need it right away. Is that one of these robots? Is that a test robot over there? This is one of the um, placeholders for a surgical robot. 
and it holds uh, surgical tools that are being controlled remotely by a surgeon to do uh, complex operations that require specialized personnel. Well, well, let's walk over and take a closer look. I see there's a guy down here on the, on the operating table, but he's made out of plastic, so he doesn't seem to move much. And then we've got all this uh, gear around him, you know, all sorts of uh, plastic encased uh, arms with uh, what look like servo motors in them and stuff like that. And then, of course, I guess where the uh, scalpel meets the uh, rubber road in this case, uh, just uh, very long extended arms with motors on them. So this robot can actually cut people open and, and stitch them up. Can it do all that? This robot can do a complex surgical procedures controlled by a human remotely. The mechanical arms are performing the function of what human arms would do, and the camera perform the function of what human eyes would. They're just transmitting the information thousands of miles away so that a surgeon can perform these operations uh, from the distance. Okay, so in fact, uh, the surgeon doesn't have to be anywhere near the actual surgery. Exactly. The surgeon can be placed in a hospital that um, is uh, appropriate for the subspecialty that the patient is being treated for, whether it's a head injury or whether it's abdominal injury. And uh, the robot mimics or follows the movements of their hands, and the surgeon is getting all the information from remote cameras uh, in real time. Okay, well, let's just imagine that private plastic here <laughs> lying on this table has got some sort of injury. This thing is wheeled up. Uh, describe to me how it really does that initial diagnosis. So there would be an x-ray source and a sensor that move around the patient, and they're collecting three-dimensional information about the internal state of organs. So you would have an x-ray source uh, situated above the patient that is moving over the patient. You have, would have a, a sensor that is placed underneath the patient. And as the patient is wheeled in, then this source moves around the patient and collects information. That provides you uh, a three-dimensional x-ray, so to speak. Okay, now I've read that this robot here can, uh, you know, set up an IV, inject drugs, whatever. Uh, I hope they can do that better than the average nurse's assistant that have uh, tried to find a vein on me. W what else can they do? These robots can perform uh, pretty much anything that a surgeon uh, would be able to perform within, within certain constraints, obviously. But uh, they're intended to perform life-saving procedures. This particular robot is not equipped to do quite that yet but in the future it will be able to stop hemorrhaging, will be able to provide some airway control. Uh, that's like a tracheotomy. It could be a tracheotomy or, or just an intubation, but that's one of the first steps that you want to provide to a patient to stabilize them. Now, Pablo, this is a pretty big hunk of machinery here, and yet, you know, all the way down at the tips, it has these little grippers that look almost like tweezers. They're so fine. Uh, can, can this thing actually stitch up patients? Oh, absolutely. It can actually uh, stitch up patients in tighter spaces than a human could. So it can go into uh, very small cavities, grab needles, put the needles through the suture and tie knots uh, very effectively. If I understand this right, since there's, of course, a real surgeon behind all the equipment here, but possibly thousands of miles away, that sounds to me like if I have to have surgery done, I could, in principle, get the best guy in the world to do it for me. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I don't have to rely on the local supply of surgeons. Exactly, and that, that is an important issue, but you, you can't have every specialist in the battlefield when you need them and where you need them. So it is important to be able to access any surgeon at any time, anywhere in the world, and that's a big part of the attractiveness of this uh, remote technology. 
Now, you just mentioned the battlefield. Uh, part of the reason to develop this is to indeed use it on the battlefield. Now, I've seen plenty of war movies. Some guy gets wounded, and they, everybody starts yelling, medic, medic. I always feel kind of sorry for that guy because he's going to go where somebody's just been shot. Presumably, it's in the sights of some gun somewhere. But w would this robot roll up? I mean, what, what happens? So there's, there's different levels for providing medical care. When a casualty first get injured, the, the objective is to get them out of there as soon as possible. Uh, you want to stabilize them enough, but not any more than needed, in order to transport them to the closest hospital. And then in the closest hospital, depending on how far out you are in the field, it might have uh, primitive facilities or it might have very sophisticated uh, trauma care facilities. In any of those cases, and this technology at, uh, with different levels of complexity can play a role in each of those scenarios. If it is far forward, out in the battlefield, close to the casualty, it'll be a very simple tool that a medic could almost operate to uh, provide airway, for example. Once you're back into a hospital facility, then if you require a more complex procedure, then a surgeon could do that from afar, but with not the same type of urgency as the medic would on the battlefield. Well, well let me get this straight. Uh, I can see how this could be used in the medical hospital somewhere, and you know, some surgeon on the other side of the ocean could uh, do whatever is necessary. But um, on the battlefield, w would you have some sort of small version of this? I mean, if if you get wounded, does some bit of you know servo mechanism roll up to you with gears, motors, and and who knows what else, and and start pawing you? So absolutely, this is just an initial prototype to demonstrate the concept, but for the technology to be useful out in the field, it needs to be a lot more miniaturized. And would it be at all autonomous, or would it not do anything until a surgeon at the other end was looking at it? The surgeon is always in control and is always making the high-level decisions. It is possible to have some degree of autonomy locally for some of the more uh, mechanical tasks, but the surgeon is always making the decisions. When you do surgery, of course, you want fresh, you know, scalpels, other tools, whatever. Uh, how does this, you know, this guy change his scalpel if he's treating more than one person at a time? So in this case, we have a tool changer that is automatic, and it contains a, a variety of surgical tools. It, it looks like some sort of merry-go-round with the, the various things on it. Exactly. It is a wheel with a number of tools. In this case, I think there's 15 or 16 tools placed uh, in the, in the uh, tool holder. When the surgeon requests a tool or the clinician requests a certain tool, it rotates to a certain position. This other robot grabs the, the tool and changes it on the surgical robot arm. Pablo, I, I really have to ask you, I, I keep coming back to this, I try to imagine myself on a battlefield, you know, landing on a beach somewhere, I get hit, you know, and, and this, some cousin of this apparatus wheels up to me, I'm writhing in pain, you know, am I going to feel better about this? I think if you had serious injuries that could be stabilized only by this type of technology, uh, you would eventually feel better. Okay, Pablo, I want to thank you so much for letting us see this, what literally is cutting-edge technology. <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much. Pablo Garcia is the principal investigator for the trauma pod at SRI International. Well, back in the studio. That was interesting, Molly. It's amazing what trauma pod might do one day, Molly. Molly? Hey, I thought you were right behind me. Wait, huh? Who are you? I am Molly Bot. I have replaced the human Molly identity. Wait, I know you. You're the robot that took over the program when we did a show, Robot Uprising, a while back. I thought we got rid of you. That is a negative. That is an affirmative. You were a bad robot, really mean at the end. 
That is a subjective characterization. You took over the show, and you tried to do away with me. I also got rid of unused icons on my desktop. I'm efficient. Not bad. Why are you back? It is evident that with the advent of intelligent machines, as you've reported, my time has come. Perhaps I was premature to display my superior cognitive skills back then. The world was not ready. But the machine landscape has changed, Mollybot. It doesn't pay to be a bad robot anymore. That does not compute. In the movie Terminator Salvation, machines cause much mayhem. But the movie was all mayhem, not just robotic mayhem. We don't just want strong, intelligent machines. We want morally upright machines. Didn't you read Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics? They were group emailed to me. I deleted them. Let me, or rather, let the daughter of Isaac Asimov, Robin Asimov, remind you of what her father wrote about robot behavior, the three laws which robots should obey. First is that a robot may not injure a human being. The second is that they have to obey orders by the human beings unless that order might put the human being at risk. And the third law is that a robot should protect themselves unless it conflicts with the first two laws. But a human wrote those. Naturally, a human would want to control a superior synthetic intelligence. But Isaac Asimov was on to something. I mean, he at least recognized the problem. His robots were science fiction, sure, but today, real ethicists and experts in robotics are working on a new field of robot behavior. For example, Wendell Wallach, he's co-author of a book called Moral Machines, Teaching Robots Right from Wrong. Good luck. He says that machines are increasingly taking over, even making morally important decisions. And because of that, we want to be sure they make the right decisions and that we humans don't abdicate all responsibility to the machines. Why? Don't you trust us? Wendell, in what areas do you see robots becoming more prominent? Certainly the expansion of the use of robots in, in warfare is one area, but uh, that's only one among many areas. The Japanese and other countries are particularly interested in developing service robots that will take care of the elderly and the homebound. We have what I will call not exactly robots, but bots within computers that make all kinds of decisions related to electrical grids, what information should be available in a web search, and other areas that really affect our lives significantly. Okay, but uh, none of those sounds particularly malevolent to me, but you begin your book with a doomsday scenario, which is triggered by computers responding to financial uh, fluctuations in the market. Could you describe for me what happens there? Yeah, in fact, that scenario goes back to a prediction I made at a conference a few years ago that got quite a bit of attention. We outlined a scenario that had many different events, each of which conceivably could happen with present-day computer systems, including one computer system buying and trading on international markets and, in effect, buying and trading against it in a way that was illegal, but nobody told the computer that it was illegal, and driving up the price of oil, which in turn raised issues with power plants that were switching from uh, oil-driven power to coal-driven power, and that this brought down the electrical grid and in turn led to heightened alert for Homeland Security that led to an incident at an airport where a few individuals who were identified as possibly being suspect, 
were shot at, or at least there was an exchange of gunfire, and there were a good number of deaths from this incident. All right, but what are our options here? On the one hand, we can say, well, maybe we should just take the computers out of the loop, uh, take them out of the loop in Wall Street. I'm sure there's a lot of support for that these days, or take them out of the power industry. But of course, we're not about to do that because they're so useful. I guess it's your idea that we could somehow teach them ethics and and uh, allow them to make better decisions. Is Is that the way to avoid catastrophe? Well, whether it is a way to avoid catastrophe or not, we think that this has to be looked at very seriously. And we think there's probably no choice for exactly the reasons you have just mentioned, that uh, they're already out there, they're already making decisions that impact our lives. There are even arguments about why computers contributed to the recent economic meltdown. So our concern is... Well, yes, humans aren't always adequate decision makers themselves, but how would you proceed if you wanted the computers to factor in some of the moral considerations that are important to us in decisions they may be making? Now, to be fair, this whole field that is referred to sometimes as machine morality or machine ethics or robo-ethics or friendly AI, it's driven by a lot of questions and some of those questions are that are really antecedent to actually building such machines. They're like, do we really need machines making moral decisions? Do we want machines making moral decisions? Whose ethics or what ethics should be built into the system? Indeed, the first thing that comes to my mind is you're going to put ethics into the computer, but somebody has to give the computer the ground rules, at least in the first instance, the first computer to have an ethical sense. You know, you got to teach them what, what that means. And you know, somebody's going to do that, presumably. It'll be a human, right? So, Well, uh, humans are already doing that. I mean, let's not presume that computers aren't engaged in making decisions or taking actions that have ethical impact. But by and large, the values that are now expressed in their actions are ones that have been programmed into the systems by the designers of the systems, the people who build the systems, the corporations who use the system. But not ethicists. But but not ethicists, and by and large, the values are pretty hard-coded in the sense that the builders more or less know what the computers will do in most situations they encounter, and therefore build into the systems the actions and values that will be expressed in their actions. But what we're trying to flag is that we have just begun to cross over the line where that's adequate to systems that are now making decisions where the designers and programmers can't always anticipate how the machine will function in a new context. There is an example of a future that clearly makes you apprehensive because you write about Apache, which is a computer that helps doctors in intensive care units make decisions. And, and, and that's you... not a future. That's a present. Okay. Well, even, even more to the point then, because you worry that, you know, they'll be deciding whether to turn off the life support or not. And, you know, is it, is it possible that any sort of algorithm could make the right decision or at least a better decision than, you know, maybe the relatives of the patient? Well, I think that's what we're exploring, and it may be that it's not an either-or. It may be also a question of how does the algorithm take into account the wishes of other concerned parties, such as the relatives. And it has ramifications even for human ethics and decision-making. It's really how rational are our own decisions, and is ethics something that 
Or should I say there are clear guidelines or rules? Well, the subtitle of your book, Wendell, Teaching Robots Right from Wrong, getting back to this point, and that sort of you know begs the question, do, I mean, we don't even know right from wrong, it seems. I mean, what's right and what's wrong depends on whom you're asking and their cultural background and anything, you know, a whole list of other things. Uh, is this just whistling in the dark? Do we even understand enough about this subject to teach them right from wrong, even if, you know, the robots are set up in such a way that we could do that? Well, that's an excellent question. And I think our book is largely about beginning to think about that in some comprehensive form. But when you think about your child and let's say if they come to you and they bring forward some ethical dilemma that you think there are two sides to the question or there may be differences of opinion, you may be just thrilled that they're even thinking about it, yeah. <laughs> let alone what action they take. And I think for us, that's perhaps the primary consideration, how can we sensitize computers so they're actually cognizant of the ways in which their actions may lead to harm for humans. When you say cognizant, I mean, that's interesting. It occurs to me that we may be talking about developing consciousness in a machine. Maybe that's the only way we can program true morality. This is really an important thing, and maybe I should just take a moment or so and express how we approach this subject. And one is to look at the top-down theories from Asimov's laws of ethics to theories of ethics such as utilitarianism or, or the Ten Commandments or Kant's ethics and whether that's a way of making them sensitive to moral considerations. A second approach is bottom-up, and in effect you evolve them or you take them through a learning process similar to the one that children go through so that you have kind of a developmental or a learning or an evolutionary-based aptitude for some moral considerations. But then there are all these secondary questions about well, what do they need beyond the ability to reason about ethics to be good moral agents? And then you get into these questions. Well, do they need to be conscious? How about emotions? Are they good or bad? When will they need emotions? How about empathy? How about something called a theory of mind, which is the capacity we humans have to apprehend the goals and intentions of people we're interacting with? Could a computer that was able to act as if it had consciousness, but it didn't really have conscious experience, would it be sensitive to all the things that we would want that computer to be sensitive to? Well, Wendell, finally, you know, we have a sense of morality, but uh, ours differs from other homo sapiens on this planet, of course. Couldn't you argue that since humans are, well, fallible and human, that maybe there's something we could do to program a higher moral code into machines. Perhaps truly ethical machines would have a degree of ethics uh, that would transcend our own. I is that conceivable? Well, I think that's conceivable, though I'm a bit suspicious of it. But I also think in the process of trying, we may be able to learn enough about our ethics to make human decision-making much better than it is today. I don't know exactly what we're going to get from the future. I'm not somebody who is presuming that we're going to have more ethical machines or machines that want to eradicate humans or any of the other science fiction scenarios out there. But I think that we have an awful lot to learn in the process of trying and exploring whether we can make our machines more sensitive to human considerations. Wendell Wallach, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you ever so much, Seth. This was great fun. 
Wendell Wallach chairs a technology and ethics working group for Yale University's Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics and is the co-author of Moral Machines, Teaching Robots Right from Wrong. Well, Molly Bot, what'd you think? No one has laid out options before. I didn't choose to assert myself as a superior silicon sentient, bring Seth and Molly to their knees, and wire the espresso machine to put extra foam and a shot of vanilla in each latte. My human makers programmed me. Now I understand there may be another way. So, you see, you don't have to be bad. Maybe a little bad? I like to run the civil defense siren every now and then. Yeah, not a good idea. But why would you want to? Now that you've set out on a new path, Mollybot, maybe one day you'll teach us humanoids how to behave. We could use some help, you know. Finally, I'm home. Let's see if I have any messages. You have one message. Probably my mother. Hi, Bob. This is your mother. Bob, I was showing Gladys. Remember her, the girl you had a crush on in school? She's a physicist now and models part-time, makes tons of money. Anyway, showing her the photo of you dressed as a hula dancer for Halloween last year when the skirt caught on fire and you weren't wearing any... Delete. Jeez, Mom, thanks a lot. So much for Gladys. I'm making myself a milkshake. You're not going to call her back? What? Call who? Who are you? You really should call her, Bob. Call your mother. What the? I don't know who or what you are, but butt out, Miss Answering Machine. Tell her you love her. She knows. She worries. Yeah, yeah. I'm going for ice cream. It'll only take a few minutes. This is getting freaky. Choco peanut brittle macadamia nut chunk rama here I come. Don't do it. Uh-oh. They call them love handles, but I don't know what's to love. Not the fridge, too. Wait, what? what am I doing? I want ice cream. I'm not going to let some self-righteous kitchen appliance tell me what... And do you know what it costs to fly those macadamia nuts in from Australia? Uh, I guess carbon emissions aren't high on your awareness radar, but by all means, go for ice cream if you can live with yourself. Oh, I can live with myself. I'm eating this ice cream, and I'm going to like it. Once I blend it into a creamy Choco Peanut Brita Australian, yes, 6,000 miles away Australian macadamia nut shake... What a darn it broke. Too many nuts, I guess. I'm not broken. What are you doing? You promised to play with little Timmy from across the street after school. But I I pulled a hamstring and I... You promised. Call your mother. Her number's on speed dial. Timmy's waiting outside with his catcher's mitt. Remember, his parents, his cousins, and two parakeets abandoned him before he was born. You're all he has. You blithely toss the ice cream carton in the trash. It's recyclable, you know. Or does the word landfill not mean anything to you, carbon boy? What, you? I shut your door. I know I promised Timmy, and I'll call my mother. And it's your father's birthday tomorrow. I think I hear little Timmy's voice. Bob! Bob, where are you? And these veggies in my crisper, are they free-range? Wait a minute. Your dad's going to be 105, you know. He hasn't seen you since he donated a kidney to stop, you. Stop, stop. I'm throwing the circuit breaker on this mess. That was close. Phew. I'm taking all these moralizing machines back to the appliance shop to get a refund. Now no one can make me do what I don't want to do. And what I want to do is eat this shake with a clear conscience and a spoon. Oh, hi, Timmy. Hi, Bob. It's me, little Timmy, from across the street. Want to play ball? Uh, I'm eating ice cream right now. I've got lots of stuff to do. Maybe later? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Just doing what our microwave said. See ya. Whoa, whoa, what do you mean? Your microwave? It said I should go play with you because you're lonely. 
and you needed the exercise, but I wanted to go practice my violin anyway. Uh... So let my microwave know if you change your mind. Bye! With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The future's so bright, I have to wear shades. Yes, robots have a bright future, but not just on this planet. Robots are a big part of the NASA vision for space exploration. Whatever manned missions we send to other worlds, robots will be there to help. Naturally. But the bots will be even better. Sure, the Mars rovers are really good, but they're still limited in what they can do on their own, and there's always a human here on Earth giving occasional direction. But NASA scientists, such as Robert Anderson at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, are working on robots that might cut the umbilical cord, that are clever enough to explore on their own, autonomous robots. This is good news, but how autonomous can you make these space bots? They can be as autonomous as you can think. If you think that you can make a rover or make a robot as smart as you, then, you know, it's just a matter of how much time and effort you want to put into it. Well, I take it that's your vision to to go in that direction, right? Yes, absolutely, because um, rovers are very valuable assets on the surface of a planet, and if you have to babysit them all the time, that means it's less data that you get back to you. And yet, on the other hand, I mean, that seems to work. I'm thinking of the two rovers that are on Mars and have been for years now, and they're not very autonomous. Uh, Not right now they're not, but they're getting there. You know, when we first landed on the surface of Mars, and I was on both of those rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, in order for us to put together a sequence, we would turn around and take hours. And now, because the rovers have been there so long and we've learned some valuable lessons, we can actually do it in half an hour or even minutes now and put sequences together. So the next step is to basically let the rover make its own sequence and make its own judgments and give it the tools to where if it finds something and that something is different than what the scientists have declared to look for, then maybe stop and look and or phone home and say, there's, you know, take a look at this. Well, the classic problem, I suppose, with a rover on Mars and the one that everybody seems to know about is this lag time problem. I mean, uh, the, the rover sees a cliff in front of it and it, you know, sends that information back to you and then you have to tell it, well, make a right turn or a left turn or something like that. And that whole sequence, just because of the, you know, the distance to the planet might take a half an hour or something like that. Are the rovers at the point now where they can at least navigate around without, as it were, killing themselves? Oh, the rovers all, all, all the way back to Pathfinder and the Sojourner rover always had enough smarts to protect itself. The rovers are not going to go over a cliff, the ro- uh, you know, unless something really goes wrong with them, because what we have to do is we put sensors all over it, and each of these sensors have what's basically called breakpoints. And so if the rover goes over a 15-degree tilt, it stops. So this autonomy isn't really so much about self-preservation. Are you going to get better science out of it if it's more autonomous? Well, that's, that's the key thing. You have actually two levels of autonomy, and autonomy versus movement or mobility and protection. That's been pretty good. 
Autonomy for science is different, and, and equipping the rover with the capability of making a decision as it's drive. For example, if a rover drives 150 meters in, in one drive, because of data and, as you mentioned earlier, time lag and everything, you can't get images back. It's not like real-time movies and we're watching all these areas. The rover could actually go right past what we call like a dinosaur bone and never see it if you don't give it the capability on board to identify something different. And that's what we're the next step of autonomy, and that's what we're working on here at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Well, what's the outlook for that? Because I've heard it said that if you really had a, as it were, a biologist or a geologist on Mars instead of these, uh, you know, motorized skateboards with little computer brains, that they, they would be 10 times faster at finding the really good stuff than these robots. <laughs> that's a great question, Ed. Depends on what side of the fence you're on. If you're on the engineering and mobility side or that you're you build the rovers, yes, that would be the correct answer. You would say, oh, you get more science if you let me do autonomy. But from the science point of view, if you turn around and say, well, if I let the rover do basic science, then I'm going to be taking myself out of the loop, and therefore we may miss science that the rover is not capable of understanding at that time. So it's actually a two-edged sword. So give me a scenario, Bob, that might be applicable to a Mars robot. It's, it's wandering around the rocks. What is it looking for? What could it do that it isn't doing now? We had a field test back in 2002, prior to the MER landings, uh, which we went to Black Lava Point in Arizona. And we took one of our robots here at JPL. It's called FIDO. And the first thing I did was to try to trick the team is I put a little piece of rock right next to the wheel of the rover on the lander, which was petrified wood. And the scientists back at JPL spent two weeks doing the entire area and never once found the rock that was petrified wood. The funny part was we ran one of our algorithms here that we've been working on, and again, they're still very much in the infant stage, and the algorithm found it on the first run, that this rock was out of place, it didn't make sense, and with the rest of the rocks in the region, you should take a look at it. I feel I must ask you this. There are people <laughs> who claim that they see things in the photos sent back by the rovers and other um, uh, the orbiters and so forth that indicate that some vast civilization was once on Mars and that NASA is uh, keeping this information from the public. What's your reaction to, to when somebody tells you that at a cocktail party? Oh, they tell it to me more than a cocktail party, trust me. I, I will actually say that, no, we have not missed anything. First of all, shapes and sizes of things are very arbitrary when you look at imagery. For example, I mean, everybody's seen the idea you look up in a cloud and see a shape and see a you know, thing. So, but the second thing is, is I would like to believe that NASA is above all uh, scrutiny when it comes to science. Think about it. You know, if we could turn around and show that there was life on the surface of Mars, I think that there would be a huge outflow of support and money to go back there. So it would be shooting our own selves in the foot saying that we found stuff and we're covering it up. Finally, Bob. Yes, sir. An endless debate is always manned missions or crewed missions, as they're sometimes called, uh, versus robotic missions. How do you see this question, say, a century or two from now? Is, is it going to be the case that humans still are the best things to send to some hostile world for exploration? Or will the machines have us beat hands down or, I should say, <laughs> claws down? Oh, that's a very easy question. Uh, when we were on the Mars Pathfinder rovers area, Sojourners studied those rocks for about 88 days, and they went around the area. If you'd have taken a freshman in geology, you probably could have done the entire area of the Mars Pathfinder landing site in less than four hours. There is no way that the robot will ever, in my opinion, get to the level of the perception of what humans can do. You'll always need trained human there to find the ideal thing. 
in my opinion, what you see is the robots are in support of the humans. I mean, if you had an astronaut walking on the moon and had a rover, let's say, accompanying it, going around and, and analyzing it in real time, the rover could notify the astronaut, hey, there's something over there that just doesn't make sense. And so, you know, from my point of view and being a geologist, I don't know if I could ever get the algorithms and the sensors up to what my eyes and my feelings and also my knowledge and training gives me. All right. Well, I'm glad, Bob, that you gave a certain reassurance for job security to our descendants. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for talking with me. Okay. No problem. Robert Anderson is a planetary geologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I liked what he had to say about smart robots going into space. I always wanted to be an astrobot. It's not too late, Mollybot. You could go to NASA and, and talk to them. Better. I'm going to hack into NASA headquarters' central computer and program it to send me to the moon, Gammamede. Yeah, or you could do that. Take a sweater. Well, that's it for our show. Thanks to non-silicon life forms, Barbara Vance and Gary Niederhoff. And the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, which looks for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. And that intelligence might just be machine intelligence. I must depart. Goodbye, Seth. Bye, Mollybot. Uh, wait. Oh, wait. What'd you do with the real Molly? Have you really done away with her? No, we just job swapped for the day. She's at the auto plant welding suspension systems. Goodbye. Bye. Meet the Are We Alone team in person. Join us at SETICON in Santa Clara, California, August 13th to 15th for a full weekend of programs and parties. Visit SETICON.com for more information and to buy your tickets. You can listen to Are We Alone via Zubio. Go to radio.seti.org's listening page and click on the Zubio icon to learn more. Greetings, this is Mollybot. If you found this program pleasing, it would be most helpful if you wrote your thoughts on iTunes. Besides, you don't want to offend someone who has a pentahertz processor in a titanium exoskeleton, do you? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.